Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. I'm James Nurse, the journal's social media editor. The podcast is a forum to explore some of the latest work published in the field of metabolic medicine, and every fortnight I'm joined by some of IMD's greatest minds. We've discussed all sorts, from disorders first described by Garrod to those that have only been reported this year, and everything in between. So be sure to check out our back catalogue, but not before listening to this latest episode on gene therapy and homocystinuria. Hello, and thank you for joining me for this episode on cystothionine beta synthase deficiency or homocystinuria to the journalists like myself. In the guest chair this week, I have Professor Warren Kruger of the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia to talk about his work looking at AAV gene therapy in mice. Warren, it normally takes a while to track down an author for one of these episodes, so it's a bit of a novelty to record this while they're still agreeing the formatting on the final publication. Thanks for making the time to speak with me this afternoon. Oh, uh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. So incredibly, this is the first time we've talked about homocystinuria in the podcast. So perhaps it's worth giving a brief intro to the condition and the current approach to management. So homocystinuria is the most common inborn error of sulfur metabolism. And in humans and all mammals, we don't have the ability to fix sulfur to amino acids. So therefore, methionine is an essential amino acid in our diet. Methionine serves a few roles. Uh, one is that it's used to make protein, obviously, but it also is the source of methionine, which is the major one carbon donor in methylation metabolism. And after methionine donates its one carbon unit, you get homocysteine, which then turns into homocysteine. And then homocysteine can have two metabolic fates. It can either be remethylated to form methionine, in which case you get kind of this cycle, or it can be condensed with serine to form cystothionine, and that's catalyzed by this enzyme called cystothionine beta synthase. When you don't have cystothionine beta synthase, your homocysteine levels become elevated, and it's the elevation in homocysteine that causes the defects in cystothionine beta synthase patients or the phenotypes. Some of the phenotypes that are noted, dislocated lenses in children, osteoporosis. Sometimes the children also exhibit Marfan's-like phenotypes. The major cause of morbidity is thrombosis in the major and minor arteries. And then thirdly, there are developmental and behavioral defects. So essentially nervous system issues in CBS deficient patients. Treating them, the key thing is to try and lower their homocysteine levels. That can be done a few different ways. In some individuals with certain specific mutations, it's done by giving large doses of vitamin B6 pyridoxine. The enzyme uses pyridoxal phosphate, which is derived from B6, as a cofactor. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, by giving a large dose, certain alleles are rescuable and the patient's homocysteine levels can return to a normal level. However, in the majority of patients, that's not sufficient. And so then they're put on diets that are low in methionine 
which because methionine ultimately gets converted to homocysteine, makes the homocysteine levels lower. Obviously, it's hard to just restrict methionine. So what that really means is a very protein-restricted diet. A third thing that they like to do, especially in Europe, is patients will get supplemental betaine to lower their homocysteine levels. Betaine is um, it's actually trimethylglycine, and there is an enzyme in the liver called betaine homocysteine methyltransferase, BHMT for short, that takes the betaine and uses it to convert homocysteine to methionine. And so that can also help lower homocysteine levels. If patients are in good compliance and they can keep their homocysteine levels, you know, everybody has their magic number. Below 50 is usually a good number. They tend not to have strokes or other problems, but for a large number of patients, that's difficult to achieve and we need some better ways to do it. Thank you. I think that's sort of a very clear summary and you've really um, practiced some of those enzyme names. (laughs) It took me a long time to get good at them. I've been working on this for almost 30 years. Why is it that someone at a, a cancer center is the person trying to cure homocysteinuria? Well, that's a very good question. So so my background is I was a graduate student in a, in a yeast genetics lab back in the 1980s and early 90s. And back in those days, we didn't have all of the technology that we have today to do in vivo genetics. However, yeast was clearly the most advanced organism. So I actually studied transcriptional regulation in yeast. As I was finishing up my graduate work, a paper was published from the Lefkowitz lab where they had coupled the human beta adrenergic receptors to the yeast mating pathway. And this was before the time when high throughput sequencing, you know, I always like to tell people, Part of my graduate work was sequencing two yeast genes of about 2,500 base pairs. That was like a major part. Today, you know, that's nothing. So I wanted to be able to use a yeast functional assay like Lefkowitz did to evaluate polymorphisms in human genes, because we already recognized even back in the early 90s that that there was gonna be a lot of variation in the human genes and not all of it was gonna be functionally important. So I set out to couple the dopamine receptors and look for relationship to schizophrenia. It it failed. (laughs) I couldn't get get the dopamine receptors to to couple well. So I went to my postdoc advisor, his name was David Cox. And I said, Dave, I think we should have a backup project maybe something metabolic, an inborn error of metabolism might be easier to get to make a functional assay. And he suggested CBS deficiency, and that's how I got in the field. So then when I looked for jobs, Fox Chase was looking for geneticists. And even though I didn't have a cancer background, they still recognized that I had something to offer. So they figured they'd hire me and I'd work on cancer as well, which I do. Half my lab does work on methionine metabolism and cancer, but I've still maintained expertise in the sinborn era of metabolism. So that's that's the story behind that. 
it sounds like we're lucky that you have. Obviously, you, you were working with yeasts. You're now working with a, a mouse model. Animal models are something that we've talked about before within the podcast and how well they model to human disease. How, is, how well does your mouse model sort of match up? So it has some features that match up well, but others that, that lack. It does a good job on the homocysteine front. The mice have very high uh, levels of homocysteine, just like the human patients do. Interestingly, the mice don't have the hypermethionemia, at least in the adults. Now, recently we found that the babies actually do have extensive hypermethionemia, but it resolves by 28 days of age. We don't understand that difference between the humans and the mice in that respect. So that's one metabolic difference. The mice have the skeletal defects that would be probably equivalent to the human disease. However, they don't get stroke and have thrombosis problems. But of course, the whole clotting system for mice is much more, I don't want to say, much more robust than humans. And if you look in the literature, it's very difficult to model cardiovascular stuff in in mouse models. In fact, if you do an autopsy in a mouse, I don't think you've ever found one that died of a heart attack. You'd think with all that cheese they eat, they'd have more heart disease. You you would think so. You would think so. (laughs) Um, So those are some differences. It does have the eye phenotype. Um, We didn't show that, but another group did. Uh, And then behaviorally, Who's to say if there are behavioral or learning difficulties? There are people interested in that, but we're not well equipped to do like, you know, learning experiments with our mice here at a cancer center. So I haven't looked at that extensively. I've collaborated a little bit. So the subject of your paper is gene therapy. It's something that we're hearing more and more about. It's even starting to become a commercially available treatment. What approach have you taken in this case? Right. So... We've been doing AAV-based gene therapy, which is the basis of the FDA-approved commercial treatment. We've collaborated with a a gene therapy expert um, named Dr. Ron Crystal at Cornell. And to be fair, I should mention that the teaming with Ron was actually suggested by a woman named Margie McGlynn, who runs a advocacy group, HCU America. So, you know, she had a, a, an important part in, and also she put some money into this to, to get us to, to do the collaboration. So when Ron and I discussed it, he suggested we use a RH11 a capsid protein and the CAG promoter because it has excellent expression in the liver, which is where CBS is normally expressed. So we designed a, a construct and Ron's facility at Cornell then produced the virus. They sent us the virus, and then we put it into our mouse model of CBS deficiency. And I should mention that before teaming up with Ron, we had tried a, a different capsid and promoter, and they worked just barely. Like it was just enough of a positive result that we didn't want to give up, but it wasn't a very robust response. But with this new uh, capsid and promoter, 
we found the very robust response that we published in this paper. And when you're looking at the results, you've talked about them in the short and long term. You've had a, a year long period of follow up after administration of the that's correct of the gene therapy, which is which is quite a long time, is it in a, in a mouse model? Well, yes, we 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 recognize that the importance of gene therapy is looking at durability. So in our hands, um, mice can live a maximum of about three years. CBS deficient mice are live a little less; they're about seven hundred days. So we felt following these mice for a year, which is about a third of their lifespan, would be a good amount to see how they were progressing. And after a year, essentially, we couldn't distinguish the treated mice from the control heterozygous mice for any of the phenotypes, with one exception. And we we were very happy with, with the result. Now, after a year, we did see some diminution of the homocysteine lowering. So after a month, we saw a 97% reduction of homocysteine. After a year, it was at 81%. And the question would be in humans, what does a year represent? Would it represent 30 years because mice only live three years and humans live much longer? or would we see that sort of diminution after one year? Because if we did, then we would probably need to figure out a way to redose every few years. Whereas if it lasted 30 years, that's almost, it becomes much more effective. So these are the things that we think about, but of course, until we start doing some human trials, we'll, we just won't know. Because even even then, you're going to have to do some very long-term human follow-up trials to correct to find that out. Correct. Presumably, at some point, we're looking to dose children would be the, I, the, the, yes. the final end point for this. Correct. In terms of the very first stage clinical trials, I think you're going to want to do people just from a regulatory perspective. Probably, um, I would I would think you're going to have to do people 18 or older, but. I don't think you want to start on the children. No, no. Well, I, we won't have to worry about that just yet, I think. I mean, you mentioned you corrected all but one of the phenotypes you said, which was the one that doesn't get corrected. So in the mice, the I phenotype, it's a little complicated. There are two reported phenotypes in the eye in the mice. One is an increased number of blood vessels and a second phenotype which was reported by Majtan, is defects in the zonula region of the eye. And we looked at the blood vessel phenotype because it was easier for us to do. That one was not corrected, but of course the mice were 40 days old when we started the treatment and the eye is already fully developed. But probably the other phenotype we still have to look at and that might be the more important one with regards to dislocated lenses. So, so I, I'm not very concerned about that, but it is in the paper. You've highlighted this, this issue. We don't get the, the thrombotic phenotype in mice. It's probably hard to say what impact this would have on that. But, and obviously the neurological phenotype is particularly important, but we'd have to presume this treatment would address the human neurocognitive issues. Yeah, because we know that what the treatment does is lower homocysteine, and we know that lowering homocysteine 
is the key to reducing all of the phenotypes found in CBS deficient patients. There's a long history of that. And patients who are compliant do better than patients that aren't compliant. And it's, it's very much related to their plasma homocysteine levels. And I mean, the UK, we've just seen a gene therapy trial for PKU in humans put on pause. And I think that was because of concerns about malignancy arising within mouse models. It's obviously a really big worry in these conditions where gene therapy eventually could be given right at the beginning of a child's life with the whole of their adult life stretching before them. Uh, is this something you're able to comment on at all? Have you seen this in your models? So we, we, we did extensive histopathology on the livers of our mice. We didn't see any evidence for hepatic HCC. And I do work at a cancer center, so our experimental histopathology facility is pretty good at that. In terms of the, um, I was looking, because I knew you were going to ask this question, I looked the other day at the the press release, because I've not seen the data underlying the pause, but the press release was unclear whether it was the gene therapy or the gene therapy with this particular mouse model, because this mouse model, besides having a PKU defect, also was an immunocompromised mouse that was then treated with gene therapy. So I think it's a little premature to assume that these tumors in mice are going to translate into tumors in in humans. There have been many children and people treated with gene therapy. And as far as I know, I don't believe there's been a single case of HCC reported in any of the individuals treated so far. So could it happen? Yeah, it could. But it seems to me that it hasn't been proven yet. What, what, what is known is that there is a small amount of integrated genome in certain mice have been reported. Um, but as I said, it's extremely small and I, I'm just not convinced that it's gonna be a problem in humans. Well, that's probably very heartening for all the people who are keeping an eye on this. I was gonna say, I mean, obviously this is, this is quite a big deal. So this is the first robust gene therapy in HCU, I think, that you've managed to demonstrate so far. Is that that's fair to say? Correct. And the results are, as you say, really promising. The only phenotype you weren't able to correct is one that if you give it at 40 days, you haven't had a chance to correct it. Where do you go from here? Uh, so that is a very good question. Um, we have ideas. To me, the biggest challenge with gene therapy is the cost to produce enough virus to correct this in a single individual if we extrapolate from the mice is in the neighborhood of you know five to seven hundred thousand dollars if we were just make the preps the same size now there might be some economies of scale but the reality is it's extremely expensive to produce the, the virus material costs a lot. We've obviously mass-produced genetic material in the context of mRNA vaccines and things and, and done it on a huge scale and sold it for... Yeah, but we can't... But capsid assembly is it occurs in, in cells. It's uh, I think they're cost cells. So they have stacks of basically tissue culture to produce this virus. And to produce enough for a patient, which we estimate to be 2 times 10 to the 13th virus... That's a ton. We were putting five times 10 to the sixth in our mice. That was the high dose. 
tissue culture is expensive. So that's why they're trying to get these other systems to work like baclovirus. And then they're, instead of stacks, you can do rollers, but and that, that might save you some money, but that's the real rate limiting thing. That's why gene therapy is so expensive. It's the production of the protein. What we really would like to do is be able to use less virus to achieve the same amount of correction. And so one of the ideas we have is through our previous work, we know that the CBS enzyme is not a great enzyme. It has a fairly lousy KM. It doesn't have a very high turnover rate. And we have some ideas to modify the enzyme to make it more efficient and more active. And we think we could achieve at least a threefold, maybe even a, a tenfold increase in enzyme activity, which would then drive the cost of the treatment down to a very reasonable cost where it really could become standard of care without breaking the bank. And maybe even they'd fund it in England where they're really tough on those sorts of things. That's <laughs> why I understand it. You're also talking about the idea of making a better enzyme. Are there any regulatory issues around that approach? You're saying you want to modify the CBS enzyme to basically do its job better. Is that regulated in a different way? I do not know of any gene therapy that has done that yet, but you asked what we were going to work on in the future. Uh, we don't think it'll be a problem because we have overexpressed the enzyme in mice. There's no, there's no downside that we've been able to determine from that. And the way that we're going to tweak the enzyme is um, based on knowledge that we have about how the endogenous enzyme is regulated by the allosteric effector, methionine. And what we found is that the mouse enzyme, for reasons that we're still not fully clear about, in vitro, it works about the same as the human enzyme, but in mice, it's clearly more robust. And so we're thinking that if we make a few changes to make the human a little more mouse-like, it might be more robust too. But we're not, not making us more mouse-like. Yeah, we're already pretty mousy. Now, I got to tell you, in my own personal view, with COVID, I'm wondering, boy, what about this mRNA packaging? Maybe we could deliver CBS. But it turns out it's not quite so trivial because you deliver that mRNA and it stays very local. And you're having your immune response basically right where you inject it. It just wasn't anywhere near as robust as this AAV gene therapy. Uh, I mean... Frankly, I, I just see this as, of all the stuff we've done, this should absolutely be something that should be tried in the clinic. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it, you got to try this because <laughs> it could work. I mean, timeline-wise, how, how long does that take? So Ron is more of the expert than me, but he thinks, um, he thinks they could have it in humans if they get the funding within two years. Like, it would take us two years, but we could get an IND because... A lot of the of the preclinical work has already been done on this particular vector, like you know the the capsid protein has already gone in, and and so that's that's what we're hoping. I think it's a little optimistic. I think it's probably more likely three, but I, I do think it, it would not be out of the question to have the first trials uh, happen in, in three years, which would be exciting. 
You know, I, I work at Fox Chase Cancer Center, and we've won two Nobel Prizes here. And the first one was by a guy named Barry Blumberg. He, he died a few years ago, but I knew him very well. He was a, a doctor scientist, and he discovered hepatitis B virus, and he made the first vaccine. And I always thought Barry was the coolest guy because the way he discovered it was he traveled around the world and got blood samples from different people. And back in the day, you could only look at protein polymorphisms in blood. This was well before recombinant DNA or anything like that. And so he found that these guys in Australia had a particular antigen in their blood that was unusual. And basically, he pursued that for the next, you know, 20 years. And he realized it was hepatitis B virus. And then he was able to isolate the non-infectious hepatitis B virus particles, which there are a lot of, from the infectious ones. And then that was the first vaccine. So Barry probably personally is responsible for, you know, a million people who didn't die. You know, and we'd have lunch together. And when he was older, he, he was, he'd still show up here and we'd have lunch together and we'd chat. And I'd say, Barry, you know, I just think that's so cool. Like you went from basic science and then you could see like people benefited in your lifetime. So I would be thrilled if some homocystinuric patients quality of life improved because of something I did. It would, it would, it would tickle me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds fantastic and I wish you kind of all the, the best with it going forward. If you would like to read this paper, then please go to the journal website and search for AAV gene therapy in CBS deficiency. And you can look in the most cited section of the website for a terrific paper on the diagnosis and management of homocystinuria. Here's hoping this kind of treatment will result in that being completely rewritten in the future um, and making everyone's lives a lot easier. Warren, thank you again for your time. Oh, it was a pleasure, James. I very much enjoyed it. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.